I grew up in a small neighborhood in East Texas in Tyler, and across the, across the street was actually a huge farm that was owned by Slick Dean. Slick was a rose grower. His daughter was one of the rose queens, um, which in Tyler is a big deal. We'd go out on his property, and we'd have neighborhood rock fights. Don't, don't try this at home. I actually hit Gayla Potter on top of the head. She bled a lot. The moms made us stop having the fight, rock fights. Um, We'd play football around the, up at the elementary school because the best grass was around the flagpole. And the flagpole was perfect because you could, if you really timed it well, you could run someone into the flagpole. And that, our mothers didn't like that very much either. Um, but I especially remember playing baseball. We, there was a little field down below us, and of course everything had rocks, but we'd play baseball there, and, and it would go great until someone lost the ball in the weeds because we were in the one-ball league. You know how it is. You have one ball, it's kind of dirty, and, and, and you'd play till you lost the ball. And, and someone would hit it down by the creek, and we'd go down and, and dig around, or into the high weeds, and we'd dig around. And, but once the ball's lost, once you've lost your ball in the weeds, you're in trouble. There's no more baseball. You know what I'm saying? And, and that's why I love that phrase. They lost their ball in the weeds because I understand exactly what that means. When you've lost your ball in the weeds, you can't play the game anymore. You can have everything you need. You can have great gloves and bats, a perfect field. You can have everything the game needs. But if you don't have the ball, if you've lost it in the weeds, you can't play. Today we're going to look at the disciples because they kind of lost their ball in the weeds. And, and I think it's particularly instructive because, quite frankly, sometimes my ball is in the weeds there with them. If you'll turn with me to Luke chapter 9, we're going to finish this first section of the book of Luke. We'll come back to Luke later on. Next week is the missions conference. You'll get to hear a good sermon for a change. Then later on, I'm going to start another series. We'll come back to Luke later on. But I hope this has been meaningful with you as we've walked through Dr. Luke's historical work on the person of who Jesus is. And the emphasis of the first eight chapters has been on the character and person of who Jesus is and our response of faith. Heavy, heavy emphasis on what it means to entrust ourselves to Him, to make Him the focus of our, tra- of our faith. But now in chapter 9, verses 1 through 50, He turns to the issue of discipleship and, and He brings home what it means to follow Christ. And it's instructive for us all, even today. And I want you to notice how he plays off of the disciples, how the disciples are used to instruct us on how we should respond, and how he he plays off the response of others to who Jesus is, because how others respond reflects how we should respond. And then, then the words of Jesus will instruct us on how God expects us to respond. So if you will, look at me at verse 1. First, there's the call to service. Luke chapter 9, verse 1, when Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all the demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And he told them, take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt, whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave the town. And if people don't welcome you, leave their town and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So he sent them out. And they went from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. Remember that when Jesus called the disciples, he said, I'm going to make you fishers, except you're going to catch people now. 
And this is a direct fulfillment of that. The Lord is sending them out. Now, we sometimes in our Christianity have gotten so caught up in the educational models we grew up in, we think that discipleship is about sitting people in rooms and talking at them. We, we've taken this academic approach to what it means to be a disciple. And certainly there's instruction. Jesus certainly instructed his people, right? But Jesus didn't just do that. He sent them out and got their hands dirty in what it was to follow him. We do the same thing in certain uh, skills that are particularly life important, like, like medicine. You, you go to class, and then you would go to res internship and then residency, so you work alongside of doctors. You actually learn how to do it because you don't want to kill people because you weren't listening that day in class, right? Of course, in ministry, we just send them out to mess them up. You know, I mean, we, we don't do near as much of that. But, but the reality is that discipleship is not just a, about information. It's about practice, and doing. And Jesus sends the 12 out and he gives them power to do miracles. Crazy. Heal the sick, cast out demons. And it makes you wonder why. Can I suggest why I think? I think because we don't understand the power of God until he uses us by his power. We can observe his power and it's impressive. But when God actually uses you to do his work, it's mind-boggling. In other words, I can watch Billy Graham back when he was on TV, and I can go to those, and I can hear great preachers, and, and I, I can observe the ministry being done, and I'm impressed. But you know what will change your life? When God uses you to tell someone about Jesus. You know what will change your life when, when you see yourself be in the hands and feet of Jesus? It's when, when we experience the power of Christ in our work that we truly understand how great his power is. And so Jesus sends the 12 out and empowers them, not only for the benefit of the villages they visited, but, but for their own benefit to experience the power of Christ in a whole new way. And they do. Interestingly, he gives them specific instructions. There's some disagreement uh, in the details between the Gospels on the instructions. Essentially, he says, don't take anything extra and stay at one house. That, that sounds normal. In their century, philosophers would work as many houses in a city as possible because they did fundraising at every one. Jesus is kind of saying, just go in, be a friend have your impact, and if they don't listen, shake the dust off your feet. And uh, Daryl Bach in his commentary says, ineffectively, good riddance, I've tried. So he continues, verse 7. Now Herod Antipas, uh, Herod Antipas was the son of Herod the Great, one of the sons of Herod the Great. Um, Harold Honer, who attended here for 100 years, was the world's foremost authority on Herod Antipas pretty much what I thought, but it's, you know, I mean, it's, it's kind of cool. Um, yeah, it really is amazing character who had a significant role in the life of Christ. The Tetrarch, he heard about all that was going on, and he was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead, and others that Elijah had appeared, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. Did you notice every one of those solutions is supernatural? Everyone knew that Jesus was supernatural. Some thought he might have been John, having been beheaded. Some thought he might have been Elijah. Some other prophets from all over. But everyone knew he was supernatural. 
But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. Interestingly, Luke uses Herod, an enemy of the cross, to ask the essential question. And as we walk through this passage, it'll be asked by multiple people and ultimately answered by God himself. Who is this? Verse 10, when the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done, and he took them with him, and they withdrew, withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. That's up in the northeastern corner of the Sea of Galilee, we think. But the crowds learned about it, and they followed him, and he welcomed them, and he spoke to them about the kingdom of God, and he healed those who needed healing. Disciples were looking for a break. Jesus kept serving. Verse 12. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we're in a remote place here. And they answered, and he replied, will you give them something to eat? <laughs> and they answered, we have only five loaves of bread and two fish. Unless we go and buy food for all this crowd, about, there were about 5,000 men were there. And he said to the disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And the disciples did so, and everyone sat down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people, and they all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. I love what Jesus does. They've gone out and they've done all these miracles, so they're feeling pretty good about themselves. In fact, they want to have show and tell. They want to get alone with Jesus and tell him all the great things that they've done. And so they come because one of the most prevalent of all spiritual gifts in the body of Christ is pointing out the problem. It's throughout the church. We all have the spiritual gift of pointing out the problem, right? And that's what they do. They exercise that spiritual gift. They say, Jesus, these people are hungry. And Jesus does what all preachers do. When you're thinking, whoever points out the problem, you make them responsible to fix it, right? That's the way I cut off a lot of conversations. In fact, one of the non-standing elders said, I don't like talking to you. I always leave with more work to do. I said, that's my goal. Um, so the disciples come and say, Lord, you need to send them away because they're all hungry. And, and Jesus says, well, why don't you feed them? You're so big, you've been doing miracles all over the village. You see what you can do. And they panic. They said, we've got five loaves of bread and two fish. Now, one of the other gospels says a little boy had that as his sack lunch. And, and Jesus takes the five loaves and two fish and divides them. It's, it's fascinating reading about this. Augustine, we used to call him Augustine. In East Texas, they call him Augie Baby. He, he, he taught that that the, the fish and loaves multiplied in Jesus' hands as he broke them. John Calvin, the great reformer, said, no, it multiplied in the disciples' hands as they delivered it. I never thought about it, either one. The amazing thing is, miraculously, it happened. Now, people who are skeptical about Christianity come up with other explanations. My favorite, I heard a preacher say one time, is the real miracle here is what Jesus did to the 5,000. Because what happened was, this little boy came up with his sack lunch, with his five loaves and two fish, and he 
generously offered to share with the 5,000. And all the adults who had been hiding their Big Mac meal in their togas pulled them out out of embarrassment, and they shared. And so the miracle was the selfishness of everyone was demolished by the generosity of this child. And, you know, if Jesus can create all of creation by the words of his mouth, he can make food for 5,000 out of a happy meal, right? Isn't it interesting how, how much the world struggles with the miracles of Jesus? You ever thought about why? What difference does it make? Why did he get so worked up trying to diffuse that Jesus did all those miracles? Because his miracles proved who he is. And if we can diminish what he accomplished, then we can diminish our responsibility to listen. If we can just make him a great teacher, which is what you hear in our culture more and more, Jesus was a great teacher, then that means I can do for him what I do for most teachers. I can ignore him when I feel like it, right? But if, if Jesus is capable by his very words to have power over matter and energy and life and death, then I have a responsibility, a responsibility to him. So the text says that Jesus broke the bread, they put them in groups of 50, they fed the groups, and when it was done, there were 12 baskets. After everyone was satisfied, a significant verse, the point being that Jesus was adequate for everyone's need, then they distributed and the disciples picked up leftovers. Verse 18 through 36, we see Jesus instructing them about what it is to deny themselves. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, notice the question again. First, Herod Antipas asked, now he asked, who do the crowds say that I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah and still others, one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. Have you noticed every one of those is miraculous? Jesus' stature in the community at this point was that everyone knew he was miraculous. No one said he was just a good teacher. No one said he was just a good instructor. Everyone said he is miraculous. He is someone raised from the dead. What about you, he asked. Now Jesus asked the question of the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, God's Messiah. The fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets of the coming king who would bring salvation to all peoples, bless all peoples around the world. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell anyone. And then he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. The Gospel of Mark has three different times where Jesus uh, prophesies about his sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection. Luke has two times in this one chapter when he prophesies that. The amazing thing is the disciples never understand it. They never get it. In fact, later on it'll say they don't get what he means. And you read it and you think, well, it's pretty clear. Why is that? Why do they not understand what he's saying? I'll tell you why I think it is. They had already decided what the Messiah should do. And it didn't fit with what Jesus said he was going to do. 
They had created expectation for what God was responsible to do in their lives. But they forgot to ask God. See, that, that's kind of, we get reversed with things. We think sometimes that God is here to serve us. We think that God is that great candy machine in the sky and that, that we send up a prayer and candy comes out. You know what I mean? It's that, that God is an instrument of our wills, that that's what he's there for. We get things really confused. Let me give you a couple of illustrations. One of them, I'm overweight. I know I'm overweight. People tell me every week, Andy, you've gotten kind of fat. Well, it's stress from all of you. Um, but what I've learned about people that are overweight, see, Julie's never gained weight. She did when she had babies, and then she just got mad, and it all fell off out of, her, out of fear. I, on the other hand, managed to accumulate the weight. It's something I get attached to. I kind of like it. I'm used to it. You know what I'm saying? And only people that are overweight think the solution is, I know because I've done this, I need to figure out what I can eat to help me lose weight. Okay, you other fat people, you've had the same thought. What are foods that I can eat that will... See, Julie's skinny because she says, what will I not eat in order to lose weight? I'm fat because I say, surely there's something I can eat that'll help me lose weight. That's kind of upside down. That's not the way it's intended to be. We do that in relationships. Years ago, a young woman came to my office and she said, my husband is not leading in our marriage. Well, I said, well, what does that mean? What does that look like? What... How, how can you say he's not leading? She said, well, I've told him how to lead, and he won't do it. <laughs> I think this is upside down here. You know what I'm saying? I mean, she, she missed the irony. She's never been back to see me, as I recall. Um, we get these things reversed, and therefore we lose our ball in the weeds. We think that God is here to fulfill our expectations, and then when God doesn't fulfill our expectations, we give him a grade. Lord, you didn't do so well this time. I'm a little disappointed in you. Well, what does Scripture say? Scripture says we were made for his expectations. To have fellowship with him. To love and be loved by him. And to obey him. He isn't here to obey us. We're here to obey him. Now, is there blessing in that obedience? Absolutely. But it's on his terms, not ours. And every time we try to put the terms on God, we lose our ball in the weeds. And the disciples, even though Jesus repeatedly explains to them what's about to happen, they don't hear it because he's not living up to their expectations. And then he gives the central passage the central verses of this passage in verses 23 and following. And he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself, past tense. Take up his cross daily, past tense, and follow me, present tense. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? What, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Lord, the Father, and the holy angels. See, discipleship is not about telling God what he gives us. Discipleship is about denying ourselves. Because when we're in control, we just mess things up. Take up our cross 
Now, that's an odd phrase for us because we don't see it, but in the first century of Rome, they understood what it meant when a criminal was required to drag their cross. It was a way that the Roman government communicated to the person that, that they have to humbly submit to Rome because they would ultimately give their lives. Taking up your cross is humble submission to the Lord as we follow Him. See, we, we get confused and we think, like the disciples, that, that Jesus has come to make us happy. Jesus has come just to fulfill us. Jesus has come to do what we do and we'll judge on how successful He is. But Scripture clearly teaches that we were made for Him and therefore He defines the terms of the agreement. And the terms are that in order to gain all that He promises, which is above all that we ask or think, we will only gain that when we deny ourselves. Set our own will aside because our will gets in the way. Take up our cross. Get, a, get away from our pride and our desire to have God serve us and follow His way rather than expecting Him to follow us. The disciples have been seeing Jesus' actions. They've seen his miracles. They've heard his incredible teaching. And now they have to apply the reality of what it means, and that is that they must follow him. And when we insist that God follow us, we lose our ball in the weeds. We can't play in the game anymore. Verse 28, 27. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. It's a really interesting verse. Many have debated what it means. In my opinion, it's obvious. He's referring to what comes immediately afterwards. Look at what he says. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, James, and John with him and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. You want to get a bigger description of what he looks like, read the first of the book of Revelation of Jesus in the throne room. When his humanity is less emphasized and his deity is more obvious. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. I've got to admit, I've always wondered, how did he know who was who? Did Moses look like Charlton Heston? I don't know. Did they have name tags? I don't know. Uh, probably it's from hearing and observing the conversation that he understood that the first was Moses, the lawgiver, but also from Deuteronomy 18, the greatest prophet. In Deuteronomy 18, God says to Moses, I will rise, raise up a prophet like you, and the people of the world must listen to you. And Elijah also was a great prophet, but Elijah was something else. You, you read the Old Testament prophets, and Elijah is always associated with the last days when God will fulfill all of his promises and bring about judgment on the evil of the earth and establish his reign on earth and his kingdom forever. You read the book of Malachi and Elijah is all over it. Elijah is always associated with the coming of the kingdom. That's why Peter says, let's build tabernacles. Because in the book of Zechariah, Elijah's coming and the Feast of Tabernacles is associated with the coming kingdom. 
And Peter says, if Elijah and Moses are here, then we need to build the tabernacles because the reality is the kingdom's about to come. God's finally going to do what he promised to do. And perhaps the next is my life first. Well, first, let me read it to you. Verse 32, Peter and his companions were very sleepy. Well, first, 31, they spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. And Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And this is my life first. He didn't know what he was saying. Verse 34, while he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them. You've seen the Shekinah glory. Cloud and the light were associated with the presence of God in the tabernacles that moved through the Exodus, represented the very presence of the Father. And a voice came from the cloud saying, remember the question, who is he? Here's the answer. This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. Luke brilliantly, repeatedly introduces the question about who is Jesus really. But then at the, the very presence of God, as demonstrated by the Shekinah light and glory, the Father says, this is my son. Listen to him. How do you respond to the son of the king? How do you respond to the son of the sovereign God who reigns over all things? You listen to him. You obey him. And when the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone, and the disciples kept this to themselves and didn't tell anyone at that time of what they had seen. See, the, the disciples at this point, it's early in his ministry, and they keep losing their ball in the weeds. Look with me at verse 37 when he speaks about greatness. The next day when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. By the way, some have believed this is an allusion to Moses' ministry of coming down off the mountain, having seen the face of God. And a man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. The spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams and throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth, and it carelessly ever leaves him, and it's destroying him. And I begged your disciples to drive him out, but they could not. You unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. By the way, this is the third only child in the book of Luke that is saved. Jesus loves only children. I am one. Winston Churchill said, after having sung the hymn for such a worm as I, he said, I am a worm, but I do believe I'm a glow worm. And even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at what? The greatness of God. And while everyone was marveling at all this, Jesus did. He said to his disciples, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. The second prophecy in this chapter of his crucifixion. 
but they did not understand what this meant. They'd lost their ball in the weeds. They didn't grasp it. They were afraid to ask about it. See, they had already decided what Jesus was supposed to do. He was supposed to come and, and take the throne room of Jerusalem and establish the kingdom of Israel and bring out about wealth and prosperity and peace. They had made their minds up about what Jesus' job was. And as a result, they couldn't hear him describe what he came to do. and They couldn't see what he did to accomplish his work. See, when we try to force our expectations onto Jesus, we lose our ball in the weeds. But, but when we submit ourselves to following him, when we listen to him, then we experience all that he's promised. They, they'll eventually get it. Later on, they'll come to understand it, and they'll submit, and they'll become the great leaders and builders of the church. But at this point, they keep trying to force their expectations onto Jesus. And men and women, we... We do the same thing. We often don't hear Jesus' voice because we're talking too much. We often don't respond to his leadership because we're trying to lead. We often don't see him for who he is because we've already made our minds up. And in doing so, we miss out on so much. And the reason I know they were confused is the next verse. An argument started among the disciples as to which one of them was be greatest. This is one of the more insensitive male comments of all time. Jesus says, the second time, I'm going to be submitted to the leaders and they're going to kill me. And they say, hey, who gets the best seat? They're still not listening. They're still not denying themselves. Jesus knew their thoughts and took a little child and had him stand beside him. And he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. Whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you all who is the greatest. Master said, John, we saw a nice segue. Let's change the subject, Lord. We saw one, someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he wasn't one of us. Don't stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. What are they doing? They're still trying to make it about them. Christianity is ultimately not about us. We don't go to heaven so that God can worship us. We don't pray strictly so that the Lord can understand our will. When we do that, we've lost our ball in the weeds. The intention of Scripture is that as the very king of the universe, the creator of all things, we come to know him through Jesus' death on the cross. And in doing so, as we deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him, we experience much better than if we were in charge. We experience what he intends for us. But we keep trying to take control. Romans 12, 1 and 2, you know, submit yourself as a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable. My old professor used to say the problem with living sacrifices is they keep crawling off the altar. We, we know that the whole point is to submit and to serve, and yet we just keep trying to turn it around where God follows our commands. And then we wonder why he's failed us. Following Jesus about following Jesus. 
but because of who He is and how powerful He is and how much He loves us. When we submit our wills to Him, we open ourselves up to blessings and experiences far greater than if we're in charge. Right? So why do we keep trying to be in charge? Because when we lose our ball in the weeds, we're no longer in the game. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we struggle. We know you're God. We know Jesus is your son. We know that the best of all is when we live according to your plan, and yet we keep losing our ball in the weeds. Father, teach us what it is to take up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow you. And in doing so, experience the best that's out there for us. In Jesus' name, amen.